0: chapter we likely will have two more that will be required of us to get all the way to the end i've not finished working this out so it might take more than two but that's the goal is to get this completed and two more messages so paul has established early in this chapter what the gospel message is and in agreeing that the Corinthians have accepted this gospel message this is the message of their salvation. It is a message in which they stand. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised according to the Scriptures. So, the resurrection of Christ was affirmed by many witnesses, Paul himself, who was the recipient of many visitations and visions given to him by the Lord. And although the Corinthian church accepted the resurrection of Christ, many did not believe in their own future bodily resurrection, as Paul points out in verse 12. And this is the main issue that Paul is addressing to the Corinthian church. Read along with me in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do Some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead. And we spent a lot of time developing out why this was their belief, why they had resolved themselves to this, and we won't go through all of that. But this is the main point that Paul deals with. And so Paul uses verses 12-19 through to begin to flesh out for them the impact that is real if in fact, We are not raised. And so Paul begins this by saying that if there is no bodily resurrection as you yourselves believe, then first of all, Christ has not been raised. Well, they didn't agree with that. They didn't believe that. But Paul goes through these verses to explain why Christ would not have been raised if there is no bodily resurrection. So the theological consequences that Paul articulates to the Corinthian church if there is no bodily resurrection from the dead is that Christ was not raised Preaching the gospel is meaningless because it's an empty message with no hope. Our faith in Christ and His death and burial and resurrection is meaningless because it really doesn't amount to anything if He wasn't raised. The apostles are all willing liars in this great spiritual ruse and living and dying for something that they themselves did not believe in, if that is the result, then we are still in our sin, we have not been forgiven, we have not been cleansed, we have not been made right before God, that we have perished at our death, we cease to exist, and we of all people are to be pitied more than any other because, and Paul speaks for himself and the other apostles, is that they would lived an unbelievably... Sacrificial life filled with suffering and loss for something that was not true. Something that they knew that was not true. This thing that is meaningless. And so Paul would say, we of all people are to be pitied. So Paul will now make the definitive statement about the bodily resurrection, which corresponds with the central theme of the gospel message that Christ was raised from the dead. So in this section, Paul is going to outline the theological reasons why our bodily resurrection is an essential part of resurrection theology. Now we're going to read verses 20-28, through and I will tell you on the front end, there's some phrasing in here that is translated from Greek to English that is incredibly difficult to piece together in a way that makes it very, very simple for us to understand, and that's a great challenge as we go through this, but here's what it says in this next section we're going to look at, verses 20 through 28. Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he sends over the when he when he hands over the kingdom to the to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all thing all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and in all. So there's a lot there. it's going to take us a little bit of time to to break this out. So, continuing in our outline, Roman numeral 2 is the certainty of the resurrection, which is Paul's position. The Corinthian church believes in the bodily resurrection of Christ. We've looked very briefly at the reality if there is no bodily resurrection. So now we look at number 2 in the outline, but Christ has been raised. First 20, the first half of that, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. So this point they agree on that Christ has been raised. There's no difference in that. So Paul will now begin to show the necessity of Christ's resurrection and why his resurrection guarantees our own bodily resurrection and In the future. So, what Paul is saying here, he is saying to this audience at the Church of Corinth, which we apply to ourselves today, which again shows the necessity of Christ's resurrection and why that guarantees our own. So, letter A He is the first fruits. Second part of verse 20 says, The first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, the term First fruits may sound familiar to you. Paul uses it in a variety of his letters. It is rich in its theological meaning. And it has its origin in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, before the full harvest by the Israelites was to be brought in, they were to go out into the fields and they were to get a sample of the harvest. They were to go through and cut out the first fruits or whatever that harvest was. And it wouldn't be the little budlings that were going to produce. It was going to be the best of what was available, what was ready to be brought in. And this was going to be collected and brought to God as an offering. This was called... The first fruit. So you would go out into the field, whether it be uh, the vineyards or the wheat fields or whatever it might be, and you would collect a sample of the harvest. You would bring that back as an offering to the Lord, and this was called the first fruit. So the significance of the first fruits, however, was not only was that they preceded the harvest in full, but these first fruits were a down payment or a first installment of that harvest that was to come. So this is why this is important. Christ was the first fruits, therefore it indicates that something else, namely the harvest of the rest of the crop, is going to follow at a later time. So in other words, Christ's resurrection could not have been in isolation from our own. His resurrection requires our own resurrection because His resurrection was part of the larger resurrection of God's redeemed that was going to come in the future. So Jesus' resurrection was a down payment of a future resurrection that was going to come. The resurrection that Paul is speaking about here is a permanent resurrection. So both the Old and New Testaments tell of persons who died and were miraculously brought back to life But all of those persons died again. In the Old Testament, Elisha raised a child, but he would die again. In the New Testament, Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain. He raised Jairus' daughter, and He also raised Lazarus, but each of them would die again. Christ, however, was the first to be raised, never to die again. And so He is the first fruit The down payment of a future harvest of resurrection that was permanent where there would never be any death again. So those who are asleep refers to the dead, in this instance to the righteous dead, whose spirits have gone to be with the Lord, but whose remains are in the grave, whether it be a body in a tomb or ashes spread amongst a field or down a river, Eventually, there will be a recomposition of the dead and a bodily resurrection that will be permanent and there will never be death again. Christ is the first fruits of a larger harvest of the redeemed that is to come. So this is a big part of Paul's explanation why, if we are not raised... Then Christ has not been raised because Christ is a down payment or a sample of a future harvest that is to come. Now Paul is going to explain why we can have confidence in our future resurrection and he's going to do that using the Adam Christ typology or the Adam Christ analogy. So letter B, he provides life. Not only is he Christ the first fruits, But He, Christ, provides life. Verses 21 and 22 clarifies what Paul means in verse 20 about the resurrection of Christ. Verses 21 and 22 say this, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ Christ. All will be made alive. Now, the Adam-Christ analogy is an important one, and I need to take a little bit of time and talk about why it's important, but you need to understand this. Books have been written about this particular typology or analogy, and there's no way to flesh this out to its completion so that we would understand with greater detail what this typology actually represents. So, in a very brief summary, you'll notice here that Paul uses the term man in reference to both Adam and Christ. He says, "...by a man came death, Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead." And then he articulates who that is, Adam and Christ. So Adam is the first man created in the image of God. Jesus is the God-man, the Son of God, born of a virgin... Tempted in every way, yet without sin. And while Adam was created in the image of God, Jesus was created in the likeness of God. Very, very different, but very, very significant. So Adam sinned and brought the curse of sin into the world. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect sinless life and died as a ransom for the sin of man. Because of Adam's sin, all men are condemned. Because of Christ's obedience, many are pardoned. Adam is therefore analogous to Christ only in regard to the common principle that what one man did affected countless others. So Paul articulates that impact. In Adam, in the man Adam, all are condemned, all have died. In the man Jesus, the God-man who lived a sinless, perfect life, all are redeemed. Now, we got to pause there and we'll flesh this out so we don't say something that it doesn't actually teach us here. So, let me say this. To be in Adam is to be human. To be in Christ is to be spiritually joined to the Father Through Him, through Christ. So just as death entered into the world through Adam, and all die in Adam, life entered into the world through Christ, and all find life in Christ. Now Paul is not teaching universalism or an accidental universal salvation. These verses cannot be taken out of context to mean something that they do not say. That's one of the first things we have to understand about interpreting Scripture. What does it say? And then what does that mean? So Paul does not say that all of mankind is saved. Paul is using the Christ-Adam analogy to articulate that just as sin entered into the world through one man, through this other man all have the potential to find life so let's look at some of these verses that would undo the idea that there is such a thing as universalism or an accidental universal salvation. Paul would say Galatians 3:26For you are all sons of God how through faith, in Christ Jesus. Not because you are created by God, but through faith in Him. He would go on to say, in Galatians 4, 7, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, a slave to sin, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus Himself would say, in the Gospel of John 1, 12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to what? To become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And when Jesus was teaching the masses. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me. Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father. Who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day. Lord did we not prophesy in your name. And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform any miracles. And then I will declare to them. I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. So there is this. Reprobation that is man's because of the sin of Adam apart from the new life in Christ. And there is this new life in Christ secured through the resurrection of Christ, the new man who has come to undo the curse of death. And so this is what Jesus, excuse me, this is what Paul is explaining. Faith in Christ brings life, life provided through the resurrection of the God man and rejection of Christ keeps man in death where the resurrection life is not applied. Paul's point here is to show the Corinthians why their belief in the resurrection of Christ should logically lead to their belief in their own future bodily resurrection. Because He is the first fruits and because He provides life Through his resurrection, Paul uses the Adam-Christ analogy by showing how the man-Christ was raised from the dead. So it stands to reason in Paul's argument, if the man-Christ was raised from the dead as a first fruit, then logically we should believe in our own bodily resurrection because we are joined with him, or to him, and will be raised with him. Jesus was raised as a first fruits of a future harvest, a harvest of like kind, this future harvest of the redeemed, for whom He provides life, and He provides this life because He overcomes death. Now this is really the central part of Paul's argument. This is the main point that Paul wants to make here. Just as Christ overcame death, through His own resurrection, He overcomes death for the redeemed through their own future bodily resurrection. Now Paul will use verses 23 and 24 to clarify what he has said in verses 21 and 22. So in these verses, Paul's central argument for belief in their own bodily resurrection can be found, meaning that these verses, 23 and 24, are the central part of Paul's argument why they can believe in their own bodily resurrection. The process of death began through the fall of Adam, and that process has now been overturned through the resurrection, which means that by raising Christ from the dead, God has in fact triumphed over death. The problem is that despite Christ's resurrection, believers still die, and they must be raised because they are in Christ "...who has also been raised, and in our own resurrection, death will be overcome, as it was in Christ's own resurrection." So this goes back to the beginning part of the question, what happens to believers when they die? They did not believe in a bodily resurrection, so they began to do a lot of things... For those that had died, hoping that there was something they could do that would bring about their own resurrection in the future. And this is a big part of what comes in the section after this, where they are baptizing people for the dead. Not, not Paul with teaching, not necessary as a part of the gospel message. Doesn't secure salvation for anyone. But there's an outflow of this incorrect belief that Paul will deal with. In these remaining sections of this middle part that we're in right now. So Christ's resurrection enables, has enabled Him to overcome death and because we are joined with Him and we are He is the first fruit. First fruit of a future resurrection. We will be raised with him, and he will overcome our own death through that resurrection. So, with our resurrection, the work of Christ, uh, the work of Christ in God, will finally be God all in all, as we will see at the end of this section of verse twenty-eight. So, Paul's goal here is not to set out a detailed explanation of the end times. But he wants to explain why they can believe in their own future bodily resurrection. So here's what he says in verses 23 and 24 but each in his own order, the resurrection. Christ the first fruits, After that, those who were Christ at his coming. Then, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So Paul establishes that Christ the firstfruits has already been raised. That took place some 30 years, 40 years earlier than when Paul wrote this letter. After this... Sequentially in the order of the resurrection, those that are in Christ at his coming will then be raised, then will come the end when Jesus gives the kingdom to God, when Jesus has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So the kingdom here likely refers to Christ turning over the restored world, which has been freed from all of the enemies of God, a modern garden of Eden, if you will. All things will be restored as they were originally designed and created by God to be. Sin will be no more, and God will reign supremely without enemy and without any challenge or no longer be the power or the presence of sin. Everything will be restored to the way it used to be. Now, Paul's concern here is singular, and that is to demonstrate on the basis of Christ's resurrection the necessity of the resurrection of the dead by tying that event to the final events of the end, particularly the defeat of death, which is victoriously separated at the end of chapter 15, where Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, because Paul is not attempting to provide a detailed explanation of the end times, it is prudent to not attempt to explain more than these verses clearly offer to us. So, many believe that these verses speak of Christ appearing, then there being a rapture, then there being a thousand year millennial reign, and then the end where Christ will set up his earthly kingdom. The problem is that these verses do not provide that detail and imposing time intervals on these verses and the sequence of events... Is speculative. Paul isn't dealing with a detailed theology or explanation of the end times. What he is doing is dealing with the issue of denying our own bodily resurrection. And what Paul is saying is that because Christ has been raised as a first fruit of a further future bodily resurrection, then your resurrection is secured through the victory that he provides through his own resurrection, he doesn't get into any detail beyond dealing with that particular problem that the Corinthian church was struggling with. They believed in Christ's resurrection, but they had questions and a denied. They denied their own future bodily resurrection. So Paul has established that Christ provides life through his resurrection, and through his resurrection, he overcomes death. Now the two events of the end that are mentioned here in these verses are, number one, Jesus giving the kingdom or the restored world to the Father, and secondly, Jesus abolishing all rule and all power and all authority. That's really all Paul says about the end times. So verses 25 and 26 clarify what Paul means in verses 23 and 24 as he relates to Jesus' overcoming death. Here's what it says in verse 25. For he, Jesus, must reign until he, Jesus, has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so Christ's rule which was realized through His resurrection and His ascension, must continue until all of God's enemies are completely and finally destroyed, which happens at the very end of all things. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, Jesus has already been raised. He has already overcome death. But for those who are still alive, us included some 2,000 years later, the reality of His overcoming death isn't realized for us until we are actually raised bodily... When the end comes. When the end comes. How the end comes. The details of the end is not dealt with here. It just simply is affirming that we and they can have confidence in our own bodily resurrection. Because of Christ's resurrection. And His being a first fruit. That has provided life through His resurrection and has overcome God's last enemy, which is death. So the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And now verses 27 and 28 are going to clarify the subjection of all rule that Paul has referenced here And verses 25 and 26. Now Paul uses Psalm 8, 6 and Psalm 110, 1 to explain how the Father is responsible for this future final subjection of all things. Now, very quickly, let's pause. As Paul has identified what the gospel message is, that Christ was raised from the dead, he repeated that in verse 14, he repeated it again in verse 20, Christ did not raise himself from the dead, right? Christ was raised... By the Father. So it is the Father's sovereign plan that has brought about these inevitable course of events leading to the end times that is realized in the resurrection of Christ and is now referenced here in the subjugation of all things. So Christ did not raise himself, and Christ himself does not overrule all of God's enemies and subdue them, but that responsibility, that role, that function has been given to him by the Father to carry out God's perfect plan. We'll talk about that in a summary way in just a moment. So again, Paul references Psalm 8.6 and Psalm 110.1, and he does a very loose combination of those two verses in saying Paraphrasing, rather, what those actually mean as he applies it to the eschatology of Christ's rule and the subjugation of all things. So, in the same way the Father is responsible for the resurrection of Christ, and Christ's resurrection began in an inevitable course of events, Moving toward the end of all things, the Father is responsible for the subjection of all things to Christ. So letter D in our outline, He subdues all things. Verse 27 and verse 27 says, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. And this is where it gets kind of hard to follow. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He has accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. So, let's restate that in a way that makes more sense to us in the English. God the Father is the the exception who will not be subject to Christ. The Father is not subject to Christ, for it is the Father who gave the rule and authority to the Son, and whom the Son faithfully and perfectly served. So at the Incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus came in a role of submission to the Father. He went where the Father told Him to go. He did what the Father told Him to do. He said the things that the Father said. Told Him to say. He temporarily set aside His role in the Trinity and a submissive role To the Father, and until the end of all things, Jesus is still in some way in a submissive role to the Father, even though He has ascended back into glory, and the subjection that is now going to be given to Christ, where all of God's enemies are going to be destroyed, that comes at the very, very end, and when that happens then there's some things that this verse tells us is going to take place. So from the time of His his incarnation until the time when He presents the kingdom to the Father, when He gives the world back to the Father, He did all of this in the role of a servant, fulfilling His divine task as assigned to Him by the Father. But when all that work is completed, when all things have been subjected to the rule of Christ, when, they, when all things are accomplished, he will then again assume his former, full, glorious place and the perfect harmony of the Trinity. Now, I can't begin to explain to you how that Trinity relationship works now with Jesus having already ascended and ruling in the heavenlies, There's some distinction that is being alluded to here. And this is what Paul says in verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. So Christ will continue to reign because His reign is eternal, but He will reign with the Father in Trinitarian glory like He did before He came into the world. So when God created man, He made him perfect, He made him righteous, He made him good, and He made him subservient. That is, Adam a type of Christ who was created in the image of God placed in the Garden of Eden. At the fall, this supreme creation of God, along with all the rest of His creation, the world, was corrupted and ruined. Our salvation points to a future restoration where our lives, our bodies, and the world we live in will be perfected as it was originally created. And when this takes place, all of this will be given to the Father by the Son. And when that happens, God will be all and in all. We will be raised up to live and reign eternally in God's kingdom with God's Son. And when that is realized, at the end of all things... God will be all and will be in all. He is already in us, but we don't see Him as He really is. We don't have the power to the fullest that God has made available to us. We see Him as if we are looking in a dim mirror. We see a representation, but we don't really see Him. We experience the rule of Christ, but we don't experience it in its fullness because of the power and the presence of sin that is still there, even though Jesus has already positionally overcome all of that. There's so much that is in here, and there's so little time to really deal with it in its fullness. But this is what Paul wants to reinforce to the Corinthian believers. Because Christ was raised and has overcome death, you will be raised with Him because He is the first fruit of a future harvest of like kind that will be experienced when the end of all things comes and God's creation will be restored to its former and original glory. To go beyond that begins to push things in this chapter that is not really here. And in this next section, we're going to see Paul begin to deal with some practices that are very difficult to know with precision what was taking place and why, for example, baptism for the dead. But Paul will continue to deal with that as he reinforces the reality that you and I in the church of Corinth can have absolute certainty in our own future bodily resurrection because of the resurrection of Christ. As he was raised, we will be raised. Where He is, we will be with Him. And it is an incredible promise that God has given to us. And for that, we ought to be thoroughly grateful. Let's pray together.